Um, how many of us were given a big grin when Jesus was wagging his finger at the, at the Pharisees and yet possibly failed to realise that he could be speaking to us as well? Something I've realised more and more I've been reading this chapter. Let's find out what's going on here, shall we? Let me just pray first. Lord Jesus, Lord, I thank you that at the end of that chapter we witness your heart. As much as you have a heart for integrity, a heart for tearing strips off the Pharisees for what they stood for and for their hard hearts, and yet you had a heart of mercy and of grace and a yearning that they would turn to you. The same heart you have for us. Lord, may once again we learn something more, may we go away from here with something more that we can cling to and understand more of your grace upon our lives and what's available to us in you. In your name we pray. Amen. So, the Pharisees. It's quite a heavy chapter, isn't it? Who were the Pharisees? These guys were man-pleasers in many ways, but like I say, we can, we can grin and smirk when Jesus is giving them his all. And actually there's something in there for all of us to learn. And we should never view this as a letter for someone else and go, oh, that's for Brian or whatever. And actually it's for us to read as well. This is Jesus' final message, his final public message, should I say, sorry, before his mercy and our sin collide at the cross. He's not very far away from that big moment in history. And here he is, we see him speaking to a crowd and his disciples at the temple. And then he suddenly turns on the Pharisees. We've met them a few times over past weeks, haven't we, in Matthew, particularly Matthew 15, I think it was, quite significantly, maybe 16 as well. Uh, I just thought today would be a good opportunity just to spend a little bit, just a few minutes to start with, just focusing on who they were. Even until recently, you asked me who were the Pharisees. Well, they're the blokes who lauded it about and Jesus didn't like and they sent him to trial and that's about it <laughs> it's easy to actually just assume we all know who the Pharisees are but we don't who were they and why was Jesus so vehement in his declarations against them well at the time there were approximately 6,000 Pharisees actually across the country and not all of them were opposed to Jesus at all in the book of John we come across Nicodemus a couple of times became one of Jesus' disciples. He was a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea as well, together they buried Jesus. Joseph is mentioned as a member of the council. It's, quite, it's almost likely he was actually a Pharisee himself because he, he actually works alongside Nicodemus as well. And for the most part, the Pharisees were hard-hearted and selfish uh, people as well. Where did they come from? Who were they? They're known as the separated ones. That's their name. And that's because of their lifestyle that they adopted, that they created, that they grew. Let me just give you a brief history of the blank page in our Bibles. We've got this blank page. You just turn from Malachi chapter 4 or 5, whatever it is, into Matthew chapter 1. That blank page represents what's known as the silent years. Four, 450 years. I think from the end of Malachi, when he either finishes his career or he dies, it's 410 B.C., so you've got just over 400 years, known as the silent years. They're known as the silent years because they were silent prophetically. God didn't speak 
through his prophets since Malachi until John the Baptist arrived. However, they were not silent years historically. That 400 and odd years shaped the New Testament world as we know it. And a heck of a lot happened since. But to keep it very brief, just to focus on who these Pharisees are and where they came from. God's people have been in exile for 70 odd years in Babylon. They get to return, 500 BC approximately, get to return from a thousand miles away back to their homeland to restore, rebuild their city, Jerusalem, and their temple, all under Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, we looked at it a couple of years back, didn't we, here? As the temple and Jerusalem itself were restored, the monarchy was not. They no longer had any kings. So as a result, the priests, the elders of the people, the religious leaders became the dominant authority in Israel. Out of that came what's known as the Sanhedrin. As we know, as we read in Jesus' time, the Sanhedrin are the council of religious leaders who were basically responsible for Jesus' trial and subsequent death as well. That's the Sanhedrin, that's the council. Meanwhile, during, during that exile, that 70 years, of course, they were in Babylon, they didn't have their temple for worship. So naturally, the next best thing appeared, which were houses of assembly known as synagogues, where they had somewhere they could meet together, they could learn and read under the scriptures and worship God together there. So when they returned, although the temple was restored in Jerusalem, across the nation, suddenly they had this easy option where they didn't have to travel to the temple for worship, they could have a house of, a house of assembly, a synagogue nearby, which is where synagogues came from. Synagogues as we know them today, Jewish churches around the world, synagogues. That's where they came from. Enter the Greeks and their culture. Very liberal, very interesting culture. This their philosophy, it all exalted humanity. It was all about arts and entertainment. It was all about pleasure. And actually, as a result, had very little moral compass. We can celebrate their art today. Greek art is fantastic. But a lot of it is very dominant in, in uh, their, their very liberal attitudes to sex and to uh, truth as well. It, well, truth, there's different types of truth. If you want to find out what the real truth is, you need to give me evidence and stuff like that, which is even today. Show, give me evidence for the supernatural and then I'll believe it. If there's no evidence, there is no God. A lot of that's still adopted today. Those were the Greeks. That culture evaded right across the known world at the time and even the Romans adopted a lot of it as well. Of course, the Orthodox Jews, they resisted it. What is this? This is completely contradictory to what we live and stand for. About 150, 140 BC, there was a civil war. Don't worry about the names, there was a famous family involved in it. But basically, they overthrew the pro-Greek party. Out of that, two main religious parties emerged, known as the Sadducees and the Pharisees. If you ever have trouble remembering who these two groups are, what they look like, call them the Republicans and the Democrats. Might be an easier way to varying degrees, not specifically, but it might help you remember this. Sadducees, they're your Republicans. The Pharisees, they're your Democrats. Sadducees, the Republicans, these guys are the, they focused on the temple as a main area of worship. They were rich, they were aristocratic, they were very political. And like I say, they focus on the temple. They're your Republicans, if you like, you're rich and powerful. Then you've got the Pharisees, we've just seen just now. The Pharisees are like the Democrats. They're for the people. They're loved by the common man. They were poor themselves. They, uh, their society was being overwhelmed by pluralism and paganism, as the Greek culture 
was increasingly taken over, and they wanted to return to their traditional moral values as a result. They refused to move with the times, and so they focused on the law and introducing more traditions and more rituals to maintain their old moral values, which eventually took over and became the whole focus of everything. They focused, ended up focusing on law rather than God, which was the point in the first place. Which is why they're known as separated ones. Their lifestyle was so many rituals and do this and don't do that and don't go there and clean this. In fact, they had a real washing ethic. They, real, uh, they had ritual hand washing. They were really into washing and cleansing utensils and furniture. They had, they had holy egg whisks and holy sofas. You know, it's just, it's just, it, it's just got ridiculous. But the trouble is, I could have been a Pharisee. I'm steeped in my Jewish culture who we know in our history have been saved by Yahweh. And we want to stand firm in that. And here comes this pluralism and paganism and it's taken over and we want to maintain what we have here. What do you do? Don't do that, do more of this. Don't do that, do more of this. Before you know it, you've gone down the wrong path. I could have done that. Were they evil? Were they intentionally astray? We can make them out to be the baddies of the New Testament, can't we? Some ways they were. But originally, I believe their heart, when it all first started, their heart was in the right place. They just wanted to stand firm on their traditional moral values. And they tried to do what they could to protect that. Unfortunately, they got blinded by it and it took over. Because as soon as Christ, here, and particularly the church as well, later on in the book of Acts, as soon as they challenged the Pharisees' love for law over God, they showed their true colours, didn't they? They showed actually where their heart had ended up. It started off in the right place, it ended up in the wrong place. And that's why Jesus had every right to say what he said here. That's who the Pharisees are. So what is Jesus saying here in 23, Matthew 23? <coughs> These guys were man-pleasers, not God-pleasers. I've, uh, can we just have the slide up, please, Helen? I've kind of broken it down. I don't know if this will help you, but it might break the, the whole speech down into four sections of where Jesus is going. So it's the first section, the first 12 verses, focusing on the general pride. They're man-pleasers. Everything they do is for man. Then he goes into the seven woes, pronounces judgment upon them, explains there's a consequence to that, even the blood on their hands, and even the consequences are, you carry on down this path, you're going to end up killing my people, which is what they ended up doing, including him. But then he pronounces, there is a hope at the end. And you see his heart when he was on his knees in that video, lamenting over Jerusalem. I would that you came to me. He indicates there is a rescue, there is a hope available for each one of us, including the Pharisees, as Nicodemus himself proved. So let's just read verses 2 to 5, say, of Matthew 23. Here Jesus cuts through the flesh of their traditions, straight, straight to the bone of the problem. Verse 2, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Actually, the language there is actually saying they have seated themselves in Moses' seat. They've planted themselves there and they're lording it over the people. So verse 3, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. As in the assumption is, we're here, you need to do what we tell you. We're in Moses' seat. There's an assumption there. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. 
how we all love to be well thought of, don't we? We all like it. To varying degrees, we all like it. We all like a slap on the back. We all like encouragement, which is a good thing. I'm not saying don't encourage each other. What I'm saying is sometimes we can seek after it to big ourselves up rather than Jesus. We all need encouragement. Some of us can go the other way and put ourselves down. We need encouragement. Encouragement, actually, I believe. You read Paul in verse 16, is it, or Romans 1, saying that I could come to you so I can encourage you. Encouragement is a massive pillar of the church, and we need more of it, to be honest. But when we personally are seeking over it so I feel better about myself because everybody thinks I'm great, there's something wrong there, isn't there? How easy is it to let people know what we've achieved? You accidentally let it slip in conversation, but you've done it on purpose. So you go, oh, well done you. Oh, oh uh, thank, thank you very much. So, oh, uh, I passed my exam this week. I got my result. Oh, what result did you get? I got an A star. Well done. Oh, well, no, it was a fluke. But you've led that conversation because you wanted the slap on the back. It's easily done. We love being elevated, but why? You see, it's not just about something particular about the Pharisees, is it? We're all exactly the same. We're all in the same boat. We're all liable for it. When it boils down to it, whether we believe it or not, or realise it or not, we all want to be number one. I don't know why I often do. I'll decide what makes me happy. I know where I find pleasure. I wish I was better than them. We're all capable of these thoughts, aren't we? I know better than God. It's bonkers, but I still do it. Pride is self-worship. Satan did it. Adam and Eve did it. We do it. Everybody else in between has done it. And it fails every single time because we don't know better than God. But how often we little humans manage to convince ourselves that we do. You think about it, it's crazy. But at the time it isn't. To us it is crazy at the time, is it? Everything they did was for men. and We're all capable of that. Fortunately, these guys have taken it too far. It's seriously gone to their heads. Therefore, Jesus pronounces these seven woes over them. He pronounces calamity upon them. Do you realise what you've done? Do you realise what you've got coming? Because you're self-centred, man-pleasers, you're not here for God, you're here for yourselves. Matthew Henry, the commentator, says, additions to God's laws reflect upon his wisdom, as if he had left out something which was needed and which man could supply. Every time we look down on someone else, Every time we think we're above the washing up or tidying up, if we think we're above the welcome team, but I really, really, really want to practice my instrument so I can get on the worship team because that would be better than the welcome team. Every time we say, God helps those who help themselves. It's in the Bible. No, it's not. (laughs) It's not in the Bible at all, but people sometimes do that. It's completely anti-biblical, actually. But every time we do those kind of things, we're adding something because we think we know better. And we're reflecting on God's wisdom and saying we know better than him and actually you need this as well. The spirit of of the Pharisees still exists. Hollow tradition, legalism, externals, hypocrisy in general, actually, sometimes. It still exists today. With the, um, when swine flu broke out a few years back, the old pig pox started ending up in the press. Daily Mail loved it, didn't they? When that was going on across all our hospitals and 
kept hearing about it in the news. The old hand-washing policy in the NHS really took off. And it's much better now. But, well, well, it's better than it was. It's better than it was. You have to wash your hands every time you approach a patient. You have to wash your hands every time you leave a patient. Wash your hands every time you make eye contact with someone down the corridor. Alcohol hand rubs popped up everywhere. You can get in the shops now. We have to wash our hands. We've got, we've got loads of this on the ambulance. I'm surprised I don't get done for drink driving. The amount of fumes I've got floating around my ambulance. It was great. It cleaned hands. Still does when we remember to do it. Thank you. It cleans hands. But the person who's ill is still ill. Stops it spreading. But unless we give that person the medication that they need, they're still ill. They're still dirty on the inside, clean on the outside. It's the wrong way around. Which is why Jesus says, in verse 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices. They're just talking about just their, their laws about setting aside, as, 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 we, do, as we do tithing now. Kind of, with the uh, with our finances, we set apart money for God. There's the right amount between us and God. These guys took it to such an extreme. Everything was tired. They want to do this. Want to do that. And if the original heart was right in the first place, brilliant. But if it's you're right with God because you get these numbers right, they're missing the point. Yeah. So you give a tenth of your spices, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. What are the more important matters of the law? cutting up the sheep right in the temple and getting the kidneys over here and draining the blood right, making sure I've got the right amount of spices and the right grams here and grams there, making sure my quiet time is at least 10 minutes every day. Is that the more important matters of the law? No. He says it's justice, mercy and faithfulness. Which is why he pronounces on them, verse 25, you clean the outside of the cup and dish. All these rules and regulations. You're making yourself look good. You're making yourself look sorted. But inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish and then the outside will also be clean. And it actually goes on. It gives another picture that says the same thing. Verse 27, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. Churches can be beautiful tombs. Meetings, 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 committees, quorums, noise, people coming and going. But it can be all admin and no spirit. We can look great doing projects and initiatives and our meetings flow really, really well, but there's no spirit. Religious busyness is a danger. There's signs of belief, but no actual heart change. And in the same way, an expected conformity is a danger. We've got to be careful, even us that are believers and in the church, we can expect people to come to church, meet with Jesus and become like us. Or, sometimes vice versa, they can come to church, become like us and meet Jesus. No, actually, 
come to church, meet Jesus and become like him. But do you see the danger? See, we can be beautiful tombs too. We can seem sorted on the outside and anything but on the inside. And we can wear those masks very, very well, can't we? George MacDonald, the Scottish minister, says half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. So often, actually, just meet people at large. They're generally miserable. Sometimes you can pin it down to something like that. They're trying to make out they're okay, but you can tell they're not. Half the time it's because they're trying to be what they're not. You can have the facade of a Pharisee, clean on the outside, or you can have a heart for him, changed on the inside. Very different. So where does this lead? Jesus predicts their future. He's pronounced the woes already, so we can guess where this is going. But he's pointing out the path they're taking. He even blames them for the blood of Abel and Zechariah and all in between from the past because of their ancestry. And he's saying this is the same thing, the same problem. And what happened there is going to happen here. You're going to kill the people I send, the teachers and the prophets that I send, which they did. And they killed him too. Because of that hard heart. Nothing we do or nothing we avoid will make us clean before God. He is a perfect God who cannot overlook sin. He can't turn a blind eye or he'd be less than perfect, wouldn't he? And so there are consequences. And so, as Jesus says, the core of the law is justice, mercy and faithfulness. Justice. God has to be just. And in his perfect justice, he has to deal with our sin, which we cannot. But in his mercy and his faithfulness, he provides a better way of dealing with that than we could have imagined. And even here, Jesus proves that. Despite their hearts, and despite the potential in the rest of Jerusalem, Jesus spares his heart for them. Which is why at the end in verse 37, it says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. He has every right to wipe them out, but he wants to gather them to himself instead. So he laments over Jerusalem. He demonstrates his heart for them and he demonstrates his heart for us in that. The Pharisees were holding on to their traditional moral values in a progressive world. Remember, they refused to move with their times. Their society was increasingly liberal to sex, to truth. Pluralism and paganism were taking over. Does that sound familiar? today, isn't it? It's exactly the same. And yet their intent to resist it, they got it wrong. We need to be aware of the danger. 
Could we get it wrong? God willing, I hope not, but we need to know we could, if that makes sense. It's exactly the same kind of world in many ways. And it's easy as a result, actually, to either absorb some of the culture in a wrongful way and take on the world's values and adopt them and embrace a plastic Christianity where we're cleaned up on the outside, we've had our spiritual Botox and our spiritual liposuction and we look great and everybody thinks we're fine and upstanding but inside we still have the wrong values, we still have idols of money or sex or food or favouritism or whatever it is we want or need and on the outside we look fine and nobody knows that, then you're just fooling yourself and you're still dirty dirty on the inside while you're looking clean on the outside. The truth is, I guess this ties in with what we were saying earlier, from Fred's word and that earlier, we only truly believe the parts of the Bible that we act on. Think about it. We only really believe the parts of the Bible that we act on. Yet here we see Jesus' heart for us in his grace and in his mercy. It's almost painful to witness. It's just His heart is just so laid bare. His heart for them to humble themselves before him. See, in Jesus' rant against the Pharisees, he mentions Zechariah, the prophet. It's almost like a random bit just thrown in there. Well, they didn't actually kill Abel and they didn't actually kill Zechariah, did they? He's laying the blame at their feet. Zechariah was a prophet who was assassinated. Is that a random mention? Of course it's not, it's Jesus. In Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet has a vision. Zechariah himself is the second to last book of the Old Testament. And he has a vision and he sees Joshua the high priest standing alongside Satan the accuser before God. And Joshua the high priest is covered in filthy rags. Excrement, basically. And Satan's pointing the finger. And God has an angel remove the filthy rags from Joshua and put some clean garments and a clean turban. Dresses him. He makes, God makes him clean. Something that Joshua the high priest can't do. Now this is significant. How can anyone stand before God covered in the excrement of their sin? Anyone? It's impossible. He's a perfect God and he can't stand it. So how is that possible? Because God by his grace cleans Joshua the high priest. Joshua is the same name as Yeshua, which is the same name as Jesus. It's foretelling the later Joshua, Jesus, who would stand in our place, covered in our excrement, covered in our sin. Through that process, we are made clean. The only way we can ever be clean before God is not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. We cannot clean the inside, only he can. 
Jesus' heart was that they would receive him as Lord, as the answer to this problem. That they would recognise they were wrong, and recognise him as the truth. His plea was that they would turn before it's too late. That final lament over Jerusalem, in the very final verse, verse 39. You can read this two ways. Because Jesus says, For I tell you, you will not see me again, until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118. That's been repeated all the way through the weeks up to the cross. When he enters Jerusalem, he gets shouted out. It keeps popping up. And Jesus uses it again himself. You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Everybody will say that. But it will be two camps. That can be a declaration of joy from the people that know him as their saviour. That can be a a lament from the people who realise it's too late. God's people one day will declare at the end times when he returns, they will be able to say, we, I will be able to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm going to say that with a massive great grin on my face. But there will be other people who will realise it was too late and pitifully will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it'd be too late for them. Do we want to be clean on the outside? Or do we want to be clean on the inside, which automatically cleans the outside? We can be seeking for reputation and looking good, but that won't affect your character. If we put character first, your reputation takes care of itself. Be good to pray. If this has spoken anything to anybody, please come and find myself afterwards. I'd love to talk and pray with you, John or David as well. If you don't want to do it this morning then, contact us this evening or tomorrow. We'd love to talk through stuff with you. But as much as I believe there's something here for everyone this morning, I think there might be something significant for a few. And if you are feeling like that, I can guarantee you won't be on your own either. There'll be someone else. But please, like Jesus' cry at the end, don't try and clean yourself up. Because it will never work. Mankind's been getting that wrong since day dot. (laughs) And we'll never get that right. Because that fails every time. But to let Jesus transform you from the inside out. It doesn't always make sense. But I've still got to do this and I've still got to do that. And I've still got to do these habits. Disciplines are one thing. But without Jesus at the centre of that, it will always, always fail. If you want to know what it really means to let Jesus work from the inside out, please come and speak to myself, John or David, and we would love to spend time with you. But where there is an opportunity in the last time, last day, to stand before him in one of two camps, I know which I'd like to be. And if you're unsure which camp you're going to be in, or you know you need him, please come and find us. Don't miss this opportunity. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, our great high priest, who is able to enter God's presence, the Father's presence, once and for all. You stood in our place through the cross, wearing our sin, and you dealt with it in your death and by the flowing of your blood that we in you might be clean, that you took your, our sin upon you, that we might take your righteousness upon us. You give it to us when we turn to you as our Saviour, as the Lord of our life, when we recognise you for who you are, for what you've done, when we recognise our sin and that we cannot do anything about it but give it to you. Lord, we praise you. We thank you. Lord, help us each this week in whatever way is appropriate to us as individuals to know what it means to apply these principles, to understand more of inside out rather than outside in. But Lord, let us not be hypocrites. Let us not be people who say we're fine and we need to get help. Or we make out we're great Christians and we know we're struggling. Let us be humble enough to seek help it can be quiet, it can, it can be behind the scenes, it doesn't have to be anything public, but get help. But Lord, we just thank you for the revelation of your truth that keeps cropping up throughout your Bible and keeps proving itself over and over again, that it's all about you, again and again and again and again. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and keep speaking to us, we pray, in your name we pray. Amen. Like I say, come and find us. Please do. If you want to have a chat or a pray, please do. If not, teas and coffees.